You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Lynn Hugo. Lynn is a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship recipient who has also received repeat individual artist grants from the Ohio Arts Council and the Kentucky Foundation for Women. Her publications include 10 novels, as well as a memoir, Where the Trail Grows Faint, which won the River Teeth Creative Nonfiction Book Prize. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to discuss her career and her 11th novel, The Language of Kin. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Lynn. Thank you, Mike. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here, and I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? I, I think there are a couple of places. The earliest I ever remember identifying that I wanted to be a writer was telling my aunt, who I think was the first person who ever asked me with any serious intent. And I remember I was in fourth grade. And I gave her this elaborate example of a metaphor that I was going to use in my first book. Um, and I didn't because it was ridiculous. But uh, she, she took me very seriously, which is, I think, a gift that adults in a child's life can give them. Um, and she said that she thought I would be an excellent writer because I was very good with words and, and that she thought I had talent and, you know, but it wasn't patronizing. So I remember that. And then in high school, I was on a literary magazine and I had a couple of poems published in, in national, but student writer magazines. And then you know how way goes on to way, and um, in college, uh, I did a double major in English and psychology, and and I kept hearing my parents echo in my head. Uh, you have to be able to make a living. You have to have you. You have to you have to know that you can make a living. That was extremely important to them, and of course, they were footing the book most of the bill for my college. So, uh, you know, I set it aside and didn't go directly to writing, but 
went to graduate school um, to become a social worker. And then I did more studying in that and became licensed as a therapist. So, you know, and then I got married and I had kids. So the next that I really went back to writing was um, when my kids were just old enough that I could do some short pieces without thinking that one of them was going to either burn the house down or kill the other one. Um, and I do mean short pieces. So as they, as they grew, then I went from poetry, short lyrics, which were being published. And I was very fortunate that I was able to get published in literary magazines pretty quickly. And then as, as they got older, I went into reason as they got older, older, I tried my hand with a novel. So I, I, that's really the, the story, but I think it's something I always wanted to do. And if you really think about what, you know, therapists are constructing as helping people construct a story that to, to revise their, their own story and to make creative changes in their lives. So to me, they fit together. Yeah. I want to go back to fourth grade because that's when, you know, you kind of mentioned that, yeah. you know, you had, it was an, an aunt um, who, who recognized some talent in you and you, you were kind of pitching a metaphor to her. What, yes. what was the metaphor you were, you were pitching to her in fourth grade? Oh my gosh. I even do remember it. And I'm, su I'm surprised you would think to ask that. That's a good question. It was something about a character named Ken. And no, there, I it didn't have anything to do with Ken as in Ken and Barbie, but how he had, there was something he really wanted and he, his hopes rose like a thermometer that was brought in from the winter day and put near a radiator and his hope shot up like the mercury on that thermometer. That's pretty, I, pretty intense for uh, someone in fourth grade. What, what kind of school were you in? A public school, just a, just a public school. Uh, yeah. I, I, that, I mean, that's, I don't remember what story I thought that would fit into or I mean, that's all I remember about it. You know, I also love how you mentioned, you know, going to college and, and the practicality of, you know, finding a career that's going to pay the bills because, I mean, writing doesn't doesn't even pay a lot of bills for people who do it for a living. Uh, at, you know, it's uh, it's it's a t in other words, it's a tough way to make a living, especially when you're starting out. Um, love the combination of psychology and English, though. I was a psych major myself because my yeah. my goal was to, to go out and become a, a you know a psychologist or psychiatrist, and I did neither. I wound up working in advertising for the same reason, though. It was because my dad said, "Hey, you've got to be able to make a living, and do you really want to be in school for the next eight years getting a PhD?" Which is really what I was leaning towards. So I. Uh, you know, I, I kind of feel that too, you know, that, that there's this pull towards practicality, but, but I mean, there is a little voice in the back of my head that says, well, what, what would have happened if you actually did 
follow that that passion um i i don't know i don't know um but yeah the other thing i wanted to to touch on was you know how you saying you know working as a therapist you know you're helping people rewrite or recreate sort of the stories of their lives i'd, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that because that sounds pretty fascinating well it's 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 less rewriting because it be you know, as as a writer, you can just you you can take a chapter, you can take a section, you can take any part of what you're writing and hit delete, and literally rewrite it. It doesn't exist anymore. But with with some with people dealing with their lives and their pasts, you it, it's there. It's it's been lived, but somebody can take the direction that the novel of their life is headed and and replot the direction it's going or even the direction it it is already being written and revise revise try to revise relationships um you, know, you can re, re, you can replot planned actions and you can revise relationships. And true, some relationships can be deleted from your life, but also some relationships can be written into your life or written back into your life. So um, if you think of the lives we live as the story of our life, our lives, then I... I I, and I, I think that people can be more or less creative with how they live their lives. Yeah, I love that that I that notion of replotting because um, you're right. You can't really change or edit the past. You might be able to process it differently or or reframe events, exactly. maybe to be more positively. But you can't change what's happened. But you can change what what will happen or might happen. Right. Uh, and, and the you way can you approach also, it. You can also look into the past and look to look for what the themes have been and maybe change your point of view about change your interpretation or modify, maybe not completely change, but modify your interpretation of what something meant and how does it need to continue affecting the rest of the story in the same way? Yeah. Well, speaking of stories, what can you share with us about your latest, The Language of Kin? Well, The Language of Kin um, deals with a fundamental ethical conflict between two zookeepers. Um, their names are Kate and Mark. Mark short for Marco. Um, and what what the conflict is over is how to help a young, terrified chimpanzee acclimate to th this a fictional zoo. I wouldn't want it, anybody to think it this is set in a, in an actual zoo. Although I did a tremendous amount of research about how zoos were. Um, so Eve, which is the name of the chimpanzee, had been caught as a baby in Uganda, 
and and sold to an American medical lab, which is has been very, very common. So she was subjected in the medical lab to years of painful experiments, medical experiments. So by the time she arrives at the zoo, which is very, very shortly after the opening of the novel, um, she's thoroughly traumatized. She's been caged alone, um, isolated. And so Kate and Mark, um, they come at it very, very differently about the what is the correct thing to do. Both have very valid arguments. These are not petty um, or um, shallow ways of looking at this ethical conflict. Both of them happen to also be the um, only child of what has ended up being a um, medically dependent mother. So they also have that pressure on them, but they don't know that about each other at the time. And so for a while, they managed to work together because they're tasked with acclimating this um, baby, this young chimp to, to the zoo. And um, they, they work at, they, they manage it until a life-threatening crisis happens at the zoo. Um, and then not so much. <laughs> well, it sounds, it sounds intriguing. How did the story come to you? Um, well, it, you know, it's one of the, was one of those confluence of a number of streams meeting and forming river. And then it just became a, a novel I had to write. There was a, um, there was a chimpanzee in, um, or maybe it was a gorilla. I, I'm sorry. I honestly don't remember. Um, might've been a gorilla, but it doesn't matter. It was one of the primates, one of the great apes, um, who was shot, um, at the Cincinnati zoo. Um, was that Harambe? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I, remember, I remember that story. Yeah. Yes. Um, after there was an accidental incursion um, into his uh, enclosure area by a, I believe it was a child. I'm sure. I'm sure it was a child. Uh, so that that always bothered me because I had read about how terribly um, upset the 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 zookeepers, his particular keepers, were by that, saying this was a gentle primate that. Um, they were, they were at the time pretty confident that he had no intention of doing anything to the child. Um, but it was protocol. Um, so that was one thing. Then, um, the other thing was I have young grandchildren and, um, on a couple of occasions I had taken them to, to a zoo. Um both in Cincinnati and Louisville. And, you know, I did find it for me, and not that it should be for anybody else, I found it upsetting to see particularly the primates and maybe also the great, the, the, the big, the great cats, the, the large cats, 
um, in, in what I thought were relatively small cages with people staring at them and knowing how, how foreign this was to how they lived in the wild. Um, then the third thing is that I, you know, I live in a university town and a lot of my friends are university professors. And one of them is an anthropologist with a specialty in primates who's done a lot of field work in Uganda and Kenya. And I was asking her some questions about this. And it turns out she has actively worked with chimpanzees in Uganda. Uh, and so that got me really interested. And I learned about how, how they are captured by poachers in protected areas while the mothers are in nursing parties. And the way they capture the babies is they kill all the mothers and then kidnap the babies, sell them at market to middlemen who sell them to medical labs and to people who want to raise them as pets, which is wildly inappropriate. Yeah. We, um, <laughs> we had a situation here. I live in Connecticut in Stanford, Connecticut. And there was are you really? Oh, no kidding. I am. Oh, wow. I, oh New yeah. England girl. Yeah, no, my, my sister and my late brother, uh, both in New Canaan. But um, there, there was, a, there was um, a woman who had a pet chimpanzee. Um, and his I name mean, was his name was Travis, and he wound up feeling threatened by you know one of her house a friend of hers, and he just like basically tore her face off, yeah. and it's like um, these are not pets, <laughs> you know they're not supposed to you're not supposed to have these things as pets, um, but um, yeah, it's 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 uh, see that that's probably where I would start the story, you know, just given given where where I live, but you know, yeah. Anyway, no way. I understand, and I'm familiar with that story too. Um, you know what happens is people get them as babies and dress them in in baby clothes and feed them with bottles and think they're going to raise them as part of the family, and then they they come into their adolescence and their strengths, and they're not living the way they would in the wild. And, you know, chimps live in very social family groups. They share parenting. They are very loyal. And they use tools. They're very, very smart. Um, and they have 98% the same. Not, well, it's actually more than 98%. It's close to 99%. The same DNA as humans. Yeah, which is probably why they're so sought after from the medical community. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, it's it's now become Ill, the medical testing has become illegal, which is why there was um, a scramble to find zoos to take them. But many of them are, were very traumatized by what happened to them in the, in the medical. They're just you know. A lot of the, for the most part, the experimentation was very painful and they were 
isolated in small cages, no contact with other chimps, and no good contact with humans. You know, I imagine just given how much, you know, uh, DNA we share, um, any human in that circumstance would would suffer from PTSD. So I'm curious, you know, do do chimpanzees and and primates suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder as well? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I can see where I can see where maybe that could be a plot point. From, From a therapist author. (laughs) <laughs> well, um, it, it, the the novel is, in, in being honest, it is a human story, and the human characters dominate the story. But it, um, there's a lot of it that's about communication in general, and not just um, animal human and and the human animal bond and and connection because you know how a lot of people feel they they bond in a certain way with animals and it's very meaningful ask me about my dog you know (laughs) um but also in in the novel there is a deaf character there is a character with what's called primary aphasia which is the loss of the ability to understand and process words but without dementia so the person is fully present um, and cognizant in their in their mind, but we need to understand they don't have language to express or process it. And then there's also a character with mid-level autism who is fully human and has all the range of human emotions and um and reactions, but without the language skills to express that express those. So what I what I really wanted to do was look at communication in all of it's probably not all, but in many different ways. How is it accomplished? So I you know I incorporated American Sign Language and how could how can that be used so th- it's about a lot of things that all in i believe tie together to a human story yeah well it uh, it sounds fascinating to me thank you i know we can't talk about it too much more because we do want people to buy it not and not spoil anything so we will we will pause talk on the language of kin and move into uh, another topic that I like to get into with my guests, which is pop culture. Um, this is one way I, in which I, I get to know my guests a little bit more. So I'm curious, okay. thinking about when you were growing up, maybe it was when you were in fourth grade pitching those um, those uh, <laughs> those metaphors to uh, to your aunt. Um, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV when you were growing up? Oh, Lord. OK. Um, once I remember. Um, I remember being hooked on Perry Mason. That was, I must have been a little older. When I was a kid, kid, um, Roy Rogers, 
Oh, Annie Oakley. Um, hmm. um, oh, it was Rory Rogers, Dale, Dale Evans. Uh, they went off, they went off the air though pretty soon. Um, Maverick. Um, was that James I Garner? Still, I can still sing the Maverick song. Don't ask me to because everybody would, would immediately turn, turn their, their radio or their, um, their device off. Um, do I remember who? Was it, was Maverick James Garner? Was he in that? Am I remembering that correctly or no? Um, I couldn't tell you. No, I have okay. no it's idea. Okay. It's okay. Um, oh, also Zorro. I remember Zorro. And who was the guy that wrote Hi Ho, Hi Ho Silver? Lone was Ranger. That? Lone Ranger. That was Lone Ranger. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, you mentioned Perry Mason. Did you watch the sort of reimagined series on HBO with uh, Matthew Reese as uh, as Perry Mason? Um, I have not watched it yet, but I have a relative who has a part in it. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. He's a, yeah, well, obviously, he's an actor. Um, who lives in Hollywood, but um, I have, I know he's in it. I've seen clips of him, um, but I have not watched that yet. I've just been, this is, this has been a very busy time for me. Absolutely. 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 Well, I would highly recommend it. And, uh, so go, go support that relative of yours and watch Paramount. Oh, I meet you. I, yes. Um, yes. what about music when you were, when you were growing up, what did you like to listen to? Um, okay. Okay. I remember being in very young, like early, or I think, I, I remember the names. I remember when it, that sometime, sometime in elementary school, Elvis was got really uh, um, of the Everly Brothers, and then at some point the, the Beatles, um, and. Uh, what was her name? The one who sang, um, oh, shoot. See, I remember some of the songs, but I don't remember who sang them. Um, I, I, I didn't really get into music until the 60s, I would say. And then if you start naming people, I say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's when music certainly changed a lot. Um, yes. And those are the, the, those, that's what I remember. Yeah. I, I really don't remember much. Do you I have, mean, a... just, I know I was aware of Elvis because everybody was aware and oh. my parents did not approve. They, they took the country by storm uh, with those pelvis, uh, swinging hips and all that stuff. I, I guess so the, the older generation was afraid of, they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. Elvis, yeah. the they call uh, how about this? Do you have a favorite place uh, where you like to read? Um, I I always read in bed at night because I can use my um, iPad and I can put a black background with off-white print 
And so I read for a long time and my husband sleeps for a long time. So it, then the light doesn't bother him. I got in the habit of doing that years ago. And other than that, I like to read out on the porch in the summertime um, or curled up on the couch by a fire in the wintertime. <laughs> Do you have a favorite place to write? Oh, it always um, here in my study at at the computer. I, I like a I like my place. Yeah. I see a number of items over your left shoulder, I guess. Um, what are some of those items? There, there's certainly one on the top next to a trophy. Uh, <laughs> looks like uh, the inspiration, perhaps, to the language of kin. Or... Uh, I think it was last Christmas or maybe the Christmas before. My, my husband bought a um, paid to support a a chimp at one of the sanctuaries in America, uh, like Chimp Haven or something like that, and they sent one of those as a as a token. Then um, over this shoulder, those are um, uh, just prints of book cover my book covers missing the language of kin, which I asked my husband to print for me, but he hasn't gotten to it yet. <laughs> Um, and then what else is up there? Oh, it's actually not a tro trophy. It's, it's two wine bottles. One is, um, a wine bottle that somebody gave me, well, with wine in it. The <laughs> wine is titled the, the Storyteller. Oh, nice. And the other one is, um, a bottle of, that had previously had wine in it, um, called, um, and the title of the wine is Hannah. And my last lab's name was Hannah. Oh, that's sweet. The, the blue bottle, uh, is that a Saratoga Springs sparkling water by any chance? Uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> I, I can recognize it. I, I I consume that stuff by the case. Do you? <laughs> it's like my, it's my, uh, my drink of choice these days. Uh, well, one, one last question for you, which is, um, I call it Dear Younger Me, which uh, just imagine yourself being able to write your younger self a letter. Uh, what would you write your younger? Maybe it's that four year, you know, fourth grader, um, you know, with the thermometer metaphor. Uh, what, what would you, um, if you could whisper some things in her into her ear, what would you tell her? I think I would say, um, I would take Mitch McConnell's criticism of Elizabeth Warren and use it as a piece of advice. Persist. Um, don't have more, maybe it's more confidence. Um, don't be, don't be discouraged by someone saying that's not a good idea. I mean, I, it's not that I think what my dad said was wrong. Um, in that I, I got a tremendous amount out of that education, and the work that I've done has very much. Uh, it's been very meaningful, but I should not have just set writing aside. Yeah, I didn't persist. I just said, "Well, that's obviously not going to work," and I I wish I had 
said, that may not work as a full-time gig right now, but I, I can make two or three hours a week for, for that. And of course, persistence is um, necessary when you're trying to get published um, because there's oh. a lot of rejection along the way. You're so right. For, for many people. I don't want to speak for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. It comes with the territory and persistence will pay off. So there we have it. Well, we've been talking to Lynn Hugo. Uh, the book is The Language of Kin. Lynn, I assume it's available wherever books are sold? Correct. All right. I invite people to to take a look at my website because there's some wonderful pictures uh, on on the website. It was just lynnhugo.com, Lynn with an E on it. All right, lynnhugo.com. And then any social media uh, places where you're active, uh, Lynn, where we could we could share with the audience? Oh, that would be great. Um, I have a Facebook readers page, which is just Lynn Hugo readers page on Facebook. I have an Instagram account, which is Lynn Hugo author. Uh, I'm... Those are really the main ones. I have a Twitter account, but I, I'm not, I'm not particularly active on it. Fair enough. Well, I'll be sure to put all of those links in our show notes for people who are listening, and they can just go right to the notes and and find out how to find you. Well, Lynn, this was been uh, been a fun conversation. Thank you for stopping by, uncorking a story, and letting me uncork yours. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.